Bill, turn with me in uh, your Bible to the book of Zechariah. Today is Palm Sunday, as has already been said, and I'm going to continue on the series we've been in on the Minor Prophets. The Minor Prophets are these 12 small books in the back of your Old Testament. They don't get much play. They don't get much airtime in, uh, in the Christian life, and so we've been going through these books, kind of giving one sermon over a whole book. And so we're actually going to skip ahead a little bit to Zechariah because Zechariah's prophecy is the most often quoted when it comes to the last week of Jesus' life. So if you will, turn to Zechariah, and we're going to start in chapter 9. And before we say anything more, we are going to pray. So if you would, pray with me. Our God and our King... Our prayer is what we have just sung, that you would be exalted, that you would be magnified and lifted up on the praises of your people. Lord, in this sermon, Lord, as we seek to understand your word, a a very difficult part of your word, but your word nonetheless, Father, would you open it to us? Would you open our eyes to behold wonderful things here? Lord, that we would not leave this room unchanged, but that we would be affected by Zechariah's vision of the future of Jesus. Help us to see, help us to understand for our good, for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. The year is 520 B.C., And a small group of Jews has been back in Jerusalem about 20 years. If you will remember, if you've been with us going through this series, right, the minor prophets show us a society in decline, right, that God's kingdom is falling apart. And last week we looked at the prophet Habakkuk, and there was really no no hope of return in Habakkuk, that Babylon was coming, and they were going to crush Jerusalem, and they were going to kill Jerusalem. God's people, and they were going to carry off the survivors into exile. Well, by the time we get to Zechariah, the the exile is over. Persia conquered Babylon, and King Cyrus sent the Jews back to Jerusalem and said, rebuild your temple. And so it was a great day. It was a day of rejoicing. The people were excited. They felt like God's promises were finally coming true, and they went back to the promised land, and they started to rebuild But it wasn't the same. They were poor. And they were defenseless. And they were harassed by their neighbors. And so they didn't rebuild the temple. And so the very center of their life, this temple where God was supposed to dwell, was a pile of rubble in the middle of the city. And so they were discouraged. And they're on the verge of giving up. And here we are, 20 years later, and the people have have given up hope. They, in a sense, have wondered if God has forgotten them. His promises are not coming true. And so Zechariah comes on the scene, and God, through Zechariah, reassures his frustrated people. And actually, if you will, look in chapter 8, verse 9. This is kind of the cornerstone of Zechariah's prophecy. 
He reassures his discouraged and defeated people by saying, Let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast, neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in, for I set every man against his neighbor. But now I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts. For there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so will I save you, and you will be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purpose to bring disaster to you when your fathers provoked me to, to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. So that's God's word through Zechariah to his people who are very fearful. He says, I haven't forgotten you. I am at work. And that's the, the whole of Zechariah's book is what that is about, right? God gives Zechariah these visions to prove to his people that he is at work. He is at work in the world and he is at work in his people and he is bringing about his good purpose. So don't be afraid and don't turn away. Don't leave me. Don't do what your fathers did and turn away from me. Turn to me. I'm still here. So the first part of Zechariah's book, chapters 1 through 8, are visions that deal with the present, with their present in 520. But then starting in chapter 9, Zechariah has visions of the future, of the distant future, of what it's going to look like when God ushers in the kingdom finally and fully. The people are beginning to realize that, that this is not what the kingdom is supposed to look like, that there's more to come. And Zechariah gives them hope in those vision. And actually, that's where we're going to spend most of our time today, starting in chapter 9, because this is the part that is quoted most often in the New Testament. If you were to start reading at chapter 9, verse 1, you see this picture, this, this vision of God marching down to Jerusalem from the north, and all, as he goes, he's conquering his enemies, and then he gets to the city. And so we'll, you will uh, read with me chapter 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, if you've spent any time around the church, then you are probably aware of the fact that this is a prophecy that Jesus uses to talk about himself. But before we get to Jesus, we need to talk about what this meant to the people in Zechariah's day. Okay? Um, 
before we can see its fulfillment in Jesus, let's talk about what it meant to the people in Zechariah's day. Remember that they, they haven't had a king. They haven't had a king since, since they were exiled. And so this idea that, that God there is going to provide for them a king is a matter of great joy to them. They won't be ruled by any foreign nation. They'll be ruled by their own king. And so they are told to rejoice. They're told to shout aloud. Their king is coming. And it's a king who's coming you're, you're glad to welcome, right? Because he's a righteous king. Unlike the rulers that they've had who have abused them, who've been unjust, who've taken advantage of them, this king will be righteous. He will defend the weak. He will defend the faithful. The ESV says he has salvation. Um, but probably more literally it says he has been saved or he has been rescued. So um, to, make it, to make it short, this king has been victorious over his enemies. He has been rescued from the hand of his enemies. So uh, that's why the ESV translated, he has salvation. Uh, He has been rescued from the hand of his enemies. He is victorious. And he is humble. He is not proud. He is not a proud, arrogant king who treads the weaker people down. No, he is humble. Which is why he comes on a donkey, not a war horse. Right? He enters the city as the king, not on a war horse going into battle, but on a donkey, humble, because he achieves peace. He brings peace and not war. And to a group of people who have only known defeat, uh, to a group of people who have only known exile and discouragement, that's good news. That finally they will know peace. That they won't, ha- they won't know strife anymore. In verse 10, says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim I will, and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. You won't need weapons anymore. Why? Because this king will speak peace to the nation. So no, notice this. His kingdom fills the entire earth. All of the nations will be his. And they will not be his by his might. They will not be his by his money. They will, be, they will belong to him because he speaks peace. This kingdom grows by peace, not by the sword. God's people will no longer need weapons because this is a peace-making king and his kingdom will, will cover the whole world, right? From sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This is the king you want, right? You want if you, were, if you were an Israelite in that day, you want this kind of king because you're tired of the ruthless kings. You're tired of the kings who take advantage of you, who make war at your expense. You want a, you want a righteous king who's going to judge fairly. You want a humble king. And so this is a picture of the future Messiah. And you, you hear that word often in the church, and that word Messiah means anointed one or chosen one, set apart for a specific task. And all of the prophets in the Old Testament develop, right, are given a vision of the Messiah, what the Messiah will be like. And so these people in the Old Testament, they latch on to these visions and they wait. And for, for 400 years of silence, they wait. They cling to these promises of this king to come And they wait. 
Flip over to Matthew 21. If you fast forward about 500 years, maybe a little less, Matthew 21, a scene that many of you maybe are familiar with. Jesus is about to enter the city of Jerusalem for the last time. This is the first day of the last week of his earthly life, and here's how Matthew tells the story. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden." So you see what Jesus is doing, he's, he's taking his disciples through this process because he's going to enter Jerusalem on a donkey. And why? Because he is fulfilling the prophecy that Zechariah spoke 500 years before this. He is, he is saying to his disciples and to the people who are going to see him coming, I am the Messiah. I'm the king you've been waiting for. Right? Let's see how the people respond. The disciples, this is verse 6, the disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. He sat on the cloaks. Obviously, Jesus didn't ride two animals at one time. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna, save us. Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. So you see, the crowds agree, right? They remember Zechariah. Remember, they've, they've been clinging to this promise of a Messiah for a long time, right? They're great-grandfather and their grandfathers and their fathers have been passing down these promises that one day this king is going to come. And they've been hearing about Jesus. They've been hearing about this man who, who can heal the sick, who makes bread for 5,000 people out of two loaves, who can walk on water. Right? They've been hearing about this Jesus, and now they see him, and he's riding a donkey into the city, and it's too much. Right? The crowd that is coming with Jesus, the crowd that's coming out to meet Jesus, they, they go crazy. Okay? They, they erupt in loud singing. And that word, Hosanna, is a Hebrew word that says, save us. Right? They, are, they are rejoicing that finally the Messiah has come. They're singing out loud. They're saying, save us, son of David, save us. But something's off. And Jesus knows it. Right, if you read Luke's account in Luke chapter 19, when Jesus comes inside of the city, he starts to weep. He says, Would that you, even you, had known this day 
the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. Something's wrong with the crowd. They're rejoicing, but Jesus knows that they're missing him. Now, don't get me wrong. They see him, and what they're saying with their lips is true of him, but what they are believing in their hearts about him is false. He is not the king that they want. The crowds that are saying, save us on Sunday, will be yelling, crucify him by Friday. Why? They wanted a king who would bring peace. They wanted a righteous king who would bring peace, who would rescue them from their enemies. And Jesus would do all of that, but he wasn't going to do it in the way they expected him to. He wasn't going to carry a sword and conquer the Romans and make Jerusalem the center of the universe. That wasn't what he came to do. And when they figured that out, they crucified him. He died because he was not the king that they wanted him to be. And I wonder, do, do you do that with Jesus? Right? Is he... Is he not the king you, you quite wanted? Right? Do you pretend, that are, are you okay with Jesus as long as he kind of gives sanction to the way you want to live your life? Right? You, will, you will praise and acclaim Jesus as the king as long as he doesn't demand something different than what you wanted. As long as he can sanction the life you think you should have. See, Jesus isn't that kind of king. And you wouldn't really want him if he was. He's not the kind of king you can rule. Because the kind of king that you can rule isn't a king at all. It's an idol. It's a false god. And those are, those are kind of like husbands who always say, yes, dear. You think you like that. But in the end, they're spineless and not good for much. No, you want a king, not that you can own, but a king that's going to own you. Not a bad king, a righteous king, a humble king, but a king all the same. That's who Jesus is. And he's a king who can conquer your heart, not by violence, but by peace. So the Jews wanted a king who would defeat their enemies, but they missed the king they should have wanted. Just like Jesus said, they didn't know what made for peace. They, very, they misunderstood the peace that Jesus was going to bring. They thought it meant national peace. And I think that applies to us. Have you misunderstood Jesus? Do you, under, do, you, do you misunderstand what Jesus has come to do, what Jesus will do in your life if you own him as your king? Because until you understand that, you can't have him. You'll be disappointed. See, you and me and them, 
we don't really need a warrior king. Right? Our greatest enemies are not out there. My greatest enemy is in here. And if I'm going to have a king, so if, and if Jesus is going to conquer my greatest enemy, he can't do it by force. If Jesus is going to conquer my sinful heart by force, he's, if he's going to conquer my rebellion by force, he would eradicate me. Does that make sense? That, that if Jesus, if you want Jesus to deal with your sinful, rebellious heart, he cannot do it by force. He cannot do it with the sword because it would eradicate you. So Jesus has to conquer another way. He has to conquer my sin and your sin and leave us intact. And if he's going to do that, he has to go about it a different way. So turn back to Zechariah because there's another vision that the people should have remembered and that we need to hear. Zechariah 13. Jesus is the king we want, but there's more to it than that. In Zechariah 13, God begins to show us and his, his people how he's going to cleanse them, how he's going to make them new. Zechariah 13.1, he says, On that day there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And on that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will cut off the names of the idols from the land so that they shall be remembered no more. So God says, I am going to lead you to repentance. I am going to clean you. I am going to do away with your idolatry. And we're meant to ask, that's amazing. That's great. How is that going to happen? How are you going to do that? How are you going to open up this fountain? Let's look at verse 7. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who stands next to me, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and will turn my hand against the little ones. The only way for God to open up that fountain for cleansing and not strike you is for him to strike his shepherd. So notice the sword is not in the hand of the shepherd. The sword is against the shepherd. The shepherd, God's shepherd, his associate, the man close to him, is going to be struck down. See, over and over again in the prophets, God tells his people he's going to provide, he's going to provide his lost and wandering flock with a king with a good shepherd. But in order for that shepherd to purchase the flock, he has to give his own life. He has to be killed. Why? Because someone must face the judgment of God for sin. Hebrews 9.22 says, there is no, Where there is no shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Someone must face God's wrath. And if it's not going to be you, if you don't want to face God's wrath then it must be Jesus. It must be God's shepherd. So here's how God is going to open up the fountain. Here's how he's going to purge idolatry. He's going to strike the shepherd. 
And Jesus brings this into full view when he applies this prophecy to himself the night he's arrested. Jesus is the shepherd who will be struck. He is the son whom the father will pierce. And he will do it to clean the nations. 13.8, in the whole land declares the Lord's declares the Lord two-thirds will be cut off and perish, and one-third shall be left alive. I will put this third into the fire and refine them as one refines silver and test them as gold is tested. They will call upon my name, and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. The shepherd is struck. Many are scattered. Right, the sheep are scattered, and yet God preserves a remnant. He preserves part of his people, and those people he purifies. He purifies by trial, he purifies by fire, but he purifies. He makes them his own so that they can say, I am the Lord's. And the Lord can say, they are mine. See, when God strikes the shepherd, a right relationship with him is restored. A right relationship with God is restored. There's no more rebellion in us. So Jesus is the king we want, but he's also the shepherd we need. As Jesus says in John 10, he is the good shepherd, and he lays down his life for his sheep. In John 10, he also says that he will take his life back up again. And that's the story of Easter Sunday. But today is Palm Sunday. Today is the day for us to rejoice and to hopefully see what they missed. To see that the king that has come to you is a good and righteous king. He's the king you want. But the only way you can have him is to come through the shepherd you need. The only way that you can be restored to right relationship with God is through the shepherd king, Jesus. And that's the only way you'll be able to rejoice. That's the only way that you can rejoice in peace forever. Because the king will come again. And as Revelation 19 points out, he won't be riding a donkey on that day. He will be riding a war horse. And the sword will be in his hand. And he will use it to judge the nations. So today is the day to make peace. Today is the day to meet the shepherd king. Let's pray. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Oh, Lord, that that would be true of us. When you struck our shepherd Jesus, you opened for sinners a fountain. A fountain that would clean us from everything foul we have done to ourselves and that we do to other people. In Jesus, we have a shepherd who atones for our sin and makes us right, puts us at peace with you. Lord God, 
I pray that we would know him, that we would trust him, that we would follow him as our king, that we would trust him as our shepherd, that our hearts of rebellion would be more and more put down by his unfailing grace. And Lord, for those this morning who are unable to rejoice because they do not know the king, I pray that they would not go a day longer that today peace would come to their hearts, to their homes.